Hello everybody, welcome back. You are listening to the New Discourses podcast. I am James Lindsay. We are in the midst of another paper reading series. So much like I read Herbert Marcuse's Repressive Tolerance in four parts, I'm now reading an abridged version, in fact a very abridged version, of Kimberly Crenshaw's most famous paper, Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity, Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color, which was published in 1991 in the Stanford Law Review. If you don't know who Kimberly Crenshaw is, she is the founder of Intersectionality and one of the founders with her mentor, Derek Bell at Harvard Law, of um, critical race theory. In fact, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw is credited with naming both intersectionality and critical race theory. Uh, So she's a significant player at the beginning of part one of this two-part series where I read the introduction to this paper. I will now read the conclusion for part two. I outlined kind of who Kimberly Crenshaw is in a little bit more detail, pointed out that she has uh, been a professor at UCLA and that she runs a very well-funded entity called the African American Policy Forum now. She's still alive, still active, still uh, vigorously pumping out the garbage identity politics that she unrepentantly um, advocates for in this paper 30 years ago. And I make the argument that uh, this paper, in fact, is significant in having changed the world, and in my opinion, not for the better. And I think that most of us will start to agree over time, if you're not already there, if you're listening to me, you may already be there, that this paper has been significant in changing the world, significantly for the worse. Um, In fact, I referred in the first part of this to saying, I said that this paper is where the ring of power was forged, the one ring to rule them all, if you will, in the darkness is brings them together and binds them. I messed up the poetry again. I kind of did it on purpose this time, though. And that particularly happens near the end of the introduction, uh, and especially and particularly in footnote 9, which appears just before the last paragraph of the introduction uh, to mapping the margins. I'm not reading the entire paper, just to sum up and do some housekeeping, because the paper is, in fact, 60 pages long. Five of those pages some of which were heavy with footnotes. Um, Five of those pages uh, constitute the reading of the introduction. Uh, I am now at the top of page 57 out of 60 to read the conclusion, which means it's four solid pages. Uh, So two parts, introduction and conclusion. I skipped all the pieces in the middle where she talks about so-called structural, political, and representational intersectionality. And that's where the uh, violence against women of color part of the subtitle comes in. Um, each section therein, she talks about either battered women or uh, raped women and talks about how those things are more intersectionally relevant in her argument because either the feminists are approaching the issue in a way that ignores the relevance of race or the race activists are approaching the issue in a way that ignores the relevance of women and feminism and misogyny. And so intersectionality, she claims, is necessary. I think that her argument is repetitive and a bit tedious, and it advances itself largely through assertions and failure to understand uh, statistics or to um, be generous and uh, reasonable about extenuating circumstances. For example, she has, I mentioned this in the previous section as well, uh, she has a a long discussion about 
um, women who are immigrants who don't speak English and the challenges they face when they go to uh, battered women's, uh, say, shelters or whatever. And she takes into account very little uh, of the real challenges that are involved with not being able to offer, say, bilingual services in a successful way that the people that she's speaking for that run those uh, shelters had encountered in the past and had bad results, and uh, whether legally liable or otherwise, uh, even just morally liable for having a, obtained a bad result by not having the resources to be able to adequately serve those people. So she says this requires an intersectional analysis when in fact it requires more resources, which is a different issue. And she, speaking of immigration, she elides the fact that immigration is its own serious issue. Um, in many of the cases, one of the cases she brings up that I didn't mention in the previous part, one of the cases that she brings up uh, says demands an intersectional analysis is the fact that there is a requirement when someone marries into the country, marries into citizenship, that they stay married for two years. Um, but that's because immigration is a serious... You don't want people to be able to hop across the border, marry somebody, you know, maybe pay them a hundred bucks, marry somebody or pay them with something else, which I'm sure she would complain, complain about both of those things, hop across the border, marry somebody, stay married for the, a day or two, and then divorce, and now you have a citizen. You know, like immigration, creating a gigantic loophole in immigration law is not that good. So then she actually complains in some detail that when it was made clear that many of the people who were marrying immigrants were there or, or, or subsequently extraordinarily abusive. And so now you have a woman, typically, I'm assuming usually women, given her argument, who's in an abusive marriage, probably doesn't speak English, has almost no resources, and knows that if she goes and tries to escape the marriage uh, to get out of that situation is likely to be deported. Um, and so what happened was Congress, understanding that this is an issue, um, depending on, I guess, your political perspective, rightly or wrongly, uh, I think it's a thorny issue and choose not to weigh in on it because I don't have an opinion that's well-formed yet, uh, but rightly or wrongly offered a waiver in those cases. Obviously, this creates a loophole in immigration law where you can still become a citizen through marriage and under the two-year period of being married um, if you are an abusive, if you are escaping an abusive marriage uh, by means of divorce. But this, of course, she says wasn't done right either uh, because not everybody, It's in fact, it's even worse than that. The reason, she says, is because to qualify for the exemption, you have to present proof that you're in an abusive relationship. So she has this very, like, almost pathetically naive, I don't even know the right phrasing of it is, just ridiculously naive idea about how immigration law should work that would essentially, if she had her way, make it so that at least for women, I'm sure the double standard would be enforced here, uh, anybody could just marry their way into the country um, with very little, uh, I mean, technically, if, if her, she got her way, somebody could marry into the country, wait three days, accuse their spouse of battery or of abuse, get divorced on those grounds, and be a citizen. Um, so again, creating a gr gross and simple loophole in immigration law that, if exploited in that case, would probably land innocent men in jail. Um, 
it's just badly thought out. Like she's not taking into reality or taking into account all of the realities and contingencies around the arguments she's making so that she can wedge her identity politics. So just before reading the conclusion, let me just draw your attention back to that identity politics and then to the one ring issue that I talk about near the end of uh, the previous part of this mini series. Identity politics is what she's unrepentantly advocating for. It's a second concept of three in the subtitle, intersectionality, identity politics, and violence against women of color. And by identity politics, she means something very specific. I outlined the history a little bit of the Combahee River Collective where the term was coined. And this identity politics I made clear, and we will see much more clearly here in the conclusion. In the introduction, she makes clear that she means that we should be doing more identity politics by intentionally putting social significance into identity categories so that one can do special interest politics on those categories, uh, so that you can effect solidarity around those categories and advocate for identity groups as special interest groups. Um, and that she's specifically borrowing from a very radical tradition. She explicitly says black feminism is her position, which is very specifically a, in fact, socialist uh, approach to fusing radical feminism and uh, black liberationism, which is to say racialized neo-Marxism or critical theory. Then at the end of the paper in a footnote, or at the end of the introduction, I should say in a footnote, she mentions um, that, uh, and to quote it pretty close to exactly without looking back, you know, whatever it is, 50 pages here, she, she says that intersectionality is a provisional concept linking contemporary politics to um, postmodern theory. So she that's where I said that the woke movement really got its birth. That's the forging of the ring of power because now you can't criticize it because postmodernism doesn't allow criticism because intellectual criticism is just an application of power now, um, even more than the critical theorists were ever able to establish. And so here is where you start to see the genuine unfalsifiable um, juggernaut that became wokeness. And it also turned, as I pointed out in the previous part, all of the different uh, kind of identity politics groups, radical feminists, black liberationists, the queer activists, etc., in into an intersectional orientation where they now had to problematize themselves for being insufficient, insufficiently sensitive to the other questions, as uh, she phrases it in a footnote, quoting another critical theorist, critical race theorist, Mari Matsuda where we see the belief that you have to assume that the other forms of oppression, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, etc., must be present. And so you have to ask the other questions, of, oh, this is an issue of gender. Well, where is the racism? Because it must be there. Um, so this is the, the place that she's coming from. Again, she talks about contemporary politics just to summarize that. And she contrasts, and this is what we'll see here in the conclusion, she contrasts very strongly the liberal approach, she says that identity politics is in tension with, uh, with, with the uh, traditional approaches to social justice. Um, and in fact, she says that the liberal approach, which would remove social significance from identity categories, makes a mistake and that it shouldn't be doing that because, in fact, it can be a source of empowerment to put social significance in a racial category. So in other words, what she's saying is to kind of riff off of something else. You know, well, white when white people were racist, they didn't do it right. Uh, correct racism hasn't been tried yet, if you will. Uh, real racism hasn't been tried yet. So what she's 
she doesn't say it that way, of course. What she says is that we're going to, as I have it, she, she says we're going to recreate racism. We're going to put social significance into racial categories in particular, as well as other identity categories. We're going to put social significance into them as a form of empowerment. My claim generally is that that is never going to work out. Identity politics begets identity politics. Putting social significance into racial categories causes other people to do the same thing. And all of a sudden, what you have is this fractioning uh, of the, the population division, uh, balkanization, you know, the inability for one identity group to be able to understand itself or to understand the others, I should say, the inability for people who happen to be a particular identity who don't fall within that, that politics to understand themselves. In other words, alienation. So if you're, as I mentioned previously, if you're a black man like Kanye West and you put on a MAGA hat and you say, I think for myself, thinking for yourself excludes you now from being black, as ta Coates replied to him, said you're no longer black. And so now ta Coates is supposed to be, I'm sorry, Kanye West is supposed to be a part of this um, identity group, but he's now been intentionally alienated from it because he didn't toe the party line. And so it gives people who are within these categories um, no ability to, to comprehend themselves in terms of that, which, I mean, if you just don't put any significance in those categories, it's fine. But if people do, it renders them pressured into having to become critical race theorists that take up intersectional uh, solidarity and kick up the ante to queer black feminism and socialists uh, by design. And so that's what I really argue is what this paper is about. And I think that was actually clear in the introduction and it will become more clear in the conclusion to which we will now turn. So that introduced, let me remind you, we are reading the conclusion, this second part of a two-part series of an abridged reading of Kimberly Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity, Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color, which appeared in the Stanford Law Review in 1991. And like I said, this abridged reading with my own commentary added in is just reading the introduction and the conclusion and skipping the uh, roughly 50 pages of um, case studies in the middle. And I elaborated on why in part one. So you can go back and check that out. And I encourage you to read the paper for yourself. You'll see that I think that I've characterized them fairly enough. Um, so conclusion. This article has presented intersectionality as a way of framing the various interactions of race and gender in the context of violence against women of color. I'll just pause real quick. This is the stuff that I skipped, right? In the context of violence against women of color. So I made the, the claim that most of this paper proceeds by, and most much woke literature proceeds by producing an assertion, usually that misunderstands statistics, that conflates categories like class into race uh, or that um, makes presumptions about what's going on or that fails to understand the various contingencies of the circumstance, uh, complications and limitations of the situation, that something's not perfect, it doesn't meet the normative vision of a liberated society, therefore you have to describe how it's problematic and then do social activism on its behalf. That's the definition of a critical theory. Um, and then it attaches this assertion-based um, fallacious reasoning to not always it's so they make good points here and there let me be fair but typically it's assertion based fallacious reasoning with good points sprinkled here and there throughout um, to some kind of a victimhood narrative or something where if you challenge it not only are you likely to be accused of being 
complicit in systems of racism and sexism in this case, but you're also likely to be accused of denying the significance of these unfortunate circumstances. So it's kind of a moral leveraging. They give you an unfortunate victim story and you're not allowed to deny the truth of what's being argued about that story because you'll be accused of denying the injustice uh, in the story. And that's an important thing to understand because that's one of the ways that they advance the the football pretty much straight down the field over and over again because you, they give you no options to challenge what they're doing. You'll be accused of something horrible uh, if you do. And so she says, uh, just to read that again, since we just started, the article has presented intersectionality as a way of framing the various intersections, interactions of race and gender in the context of violence against women of color. So if you disagree, you're probably in favor, if they would argue you're in favor of violence against women of color, you don't care enough about it. Uh, the whole, you have to care as much as we do about this thing you're supposed to be in solidarity with so we can have equity payouts is really their, their grift. Yet, she writes, intersectionality might be more broadly useful as a way of mediating the tension between, between assertions of multiple identity and the ongoing necessity of group politics. So I just said something about assertion, right? So here, um, that it just makes assertions. And so, okay, multiple identity. I said when I, I briefly touched on the paper where intersectionality originated in the previous part of the series, I said that she actually does in Patricia Collins and Black Feminist Thought, which she cites here, I said that, that these thinkers do point at some legitimate issues. There are some points in discrimination law that Crenshaw raises, for example, that you could, you could, in principle, at the time, have discriminated explicitly against black women while hiring plenty of black men and plenty of white women, and you wouldn't have been discriminating by race because there's plenty of black people. You wouldn't have been discriminating against sex because there are plenty of women, but you could technically still single out black women and not hire black women as a category uh, in deliberate discrimination and that the existing discrimination law had nothing to cover it. And Collins points out at least six um, unique stereotypes, she claims, that apply to black women that don't apply to women of other races. And I, some of the arguments I think are okay. She mentions the Mammy, for example. She also mentions the Jezebel, which is very sexually provocative. I don't know how much that's true. I don't know how much that was true in 1990 when she published the book versus it maybe being less true now. I mean, I, you know, I've seen your OnlyFans. Um, okay, I haven't. I don't pay for that, but uh, you know what I mean. So, fine, multiple identity. But then she says, she just asserts, just asserts, and the ongoing necessity of group politics. Well, at no point has there been the establishment of the ongoing necessity of group politics. Um, she hasn't checked. We live in a country that is founded on the principle of the individual, and it's useful to point out that the definition of social justice that's given in a, if I could remember the title, it'd be good, but in a... Um, Education, a social justice and education book uh, that I, I like to, to point out is that where, um, where democracy, it says, is interested in individual rights, social justice is, inter is interested in group rights, but groups aren't group. How do you, what are group rights? What, what, what does that even mean? What are group rights? 
Um, I could see that there would be an argument if, say, like during segregation or Jim Crow or slavery, that there were specific groups that were, in, or the Chinese Exclusion Act, I should bring that one up, that are explicitly left out, or women went before they could vote, or women before they were allowed to have mortgages, or women before they could have, if there were explicit exclusions or something like this, then I could see, okay, that makes sense. But I don't see that in 1991, after we already have, say, you know, the 14th Amendment, we have the Civil Rights Acts, we have discrimination based on any of these categories already being illegal, potential loopholes notwithstanding, and yet she says there's an ongoing necessity of group politics, but this is where you go back to the beginning and she's pointing out that we need to have identity politics that forwards group identity and that why? Because we have to have the ability to make political blocks where we have the voices of millions combined instead of isolated voices here and there. Um, so she just asserts, though, that there's an ongoing necessity of group politics, uh, ostensibly to achieve group rights, which is not the same then as, you know, ending exclusion by group, which technically had already been done um, by 1964, um, at the latest, this being written again in 1991. So, she, she just asserts that there's an ongoing necessity of group politics, and that's key to their, their set of assumptions that all of these woke uh, and applied postmodernists, if you want, or critical neo-Marxists, postmodern neo-Marxists or critical theorists, whatever you want to call them, they all have that kind of basic assumption that we're going to have to use group politics, and it's just asserted here, um, just asserted. Uh, and why all the backup would be bad statistical arguments, many of which conflated class or something like a language barrier, which is something slightly different, or immigration status, which is also something different, with race um, or, or even with sex. Okay, so she then says it is helpful in this regard to distinguish intersectionality from the closely related perspective of anti-essentialism. So this is where things get a little thick. This is where it's going to get a little theoretical, and I think this is important to go through, though. So from the closely related perspective of anti-essentialism, from which women of color have critically engaged white feminism for the absence of women of color on the one hand and for speaking for women of color on the other. Okay, so kind of a lot going on there. Let me break that down. So what is essentialism? Essentialism is ascribing that there are essential characteristics to something, in particular, in this case, a group. Uh, in particular, women or black women or women of color or uh, black people or people of color. Um, so to say that, oh, well, this is what it means essentially to be black. This is what black, black has these essential categories. And originally, these were all rooted in biology. It's interesting when you get to sex, biological sex, because there are things that are pretty, they don't, they're statistical in nature, right? There's a big bell curve around male and female traits, and most of it has massive overlap. But there are actually differences where those differences are much less clear and very probably barely or non-existent, barely existent or non-existent where it comes to a factor like race. Um, but she's arguing, you know, we have to be careful. This is similar to anti-essentialism, but we have to distinguish it from anti-essentialism. So anti-essentialism is being against the idea that we're going to essentialize a category. So she wants to distinguish from anti-essentialism. And what she says, of course, uh, she says, from which women of color have critically engaged white feminism 
for the absence of women, women of color on one hand. So again, we're problematizing the white, the feminism's too white, uh, and for speaking for women of color on the other. So when she argued when women of color are included in so-called white feminism, they're spoken for and often in terms that they don't recognize that don't meet their specific identity issues properly. So again, the anti is going to have to kick. Feminists now have to do the work of black feminists, as in a specific ideology there. One rendition of this anti-essentialist critique that feminism essentializes the category of women owes a great deal to the postmodernist idea that the categories we consider natural or merely representational are actually socially constructed in a linguistic economy of difference. Um, and so here she says, I follow in a footnote, the practice of others in linking anti-essentialism to postmodernism. So we're now we're getting directly into to post the fact that feminism in particular, but to a degree also that uh, anti-racism, broadly speaking, had become um, postmodern by the time she's writing this. Postmodernism had made its way in tremendously, and feminism is really what took it up. Feminist English majors are primarily the people, or English professors are mainly the people who took up uh, postmodernism as it came over from France in the 70s, and they made it, remade postmodernism in their own image, uh, which is its own separate topic to talk about at some point. Um, so what she's saying is one of the, you know, one rendition of this anti-essentialist critique that feminism essentializes the category of woman. So what what feminism begins from is actually saying that there is a category women and that it means something, right? Well, that apparently is going to be accused of essentializing the category of women. And uh, the critique of that, she's, Crenshaw argues, owes a great deal to the postmodernist idea that categories we consider natural are actually socially constructed and that they exist in a linguistic economy of difference. In other words, that there's this whole linguistic structure that sees differences, say, between men and women, but it's only really words. It's only saying that men are this way and women are that way. And we use different words like men and women that exist as Derrida had it in a hierarchical binary where power relations through philogocentrism are present. Um, but what she's saying here, categories we consider natural are actually socially constructed. Remember, we're talking about women. The category of woman, we consider that natural, but that the critique is actually not correct because um, the woman is socially constructed. So she's dipping into that. Um, but she's also, remember, distinguishing intersectionality from this anti-essentialism, which she says is key, is, is, is a core component of postmodernism. She then says, while the descriptive project of postmodernism of, uh, of questioning the ways in which meaning is socially constructed is generally sound, this critique sometimes misreads the meaning of social construction and distorts its political relevance. And so this is the key, right? So we talked about the ring of power being forged. When we came up with the idea of applied postmodernism, when we were writing cynical theories or in advance of writing cynical theories, when Helen Pluckrose and I came up with that idea, this is really the sentence that led us to really decide, yeah, that's not, I mean, we came up with the idea just looking at it. I mean, I think I might've come up with the phrase myself. Um, maybe Helen did. I don't want to steal her credit if she deserves it. But this sentence, when we f when we when we read this paper and saw this sentence, it was like, "Yep, applied postmodernism was a correct term to use." This is a decisive sentence for us. Um, 
the, the critique sometimes misreads the meaning of social construction and distorts its political relevance. But, I'm inverting the sentence, but uh, the general descriptive project is sound. Uh, the, the meaning is socially constructed. So it's sound, but it distorts its political relevance. In other words, postmodernism is tearing down categories that would be politically useful for identity politics. As we argued in, in cynical theories about the birth of applied postmodernism, as we called it, um, which we link to people like Kimberly Crenshaw in this second wave of postmodernism as we kind of outline it in the book, what we're saying is we had a batch of activists, Kimberly Crenshaw citing Angela Davis coming out of the Combahee River Collective tradition, um, tied into Derek Bell's very materialist critical race theory that he was developing along with Alan Freeman and so on. We have this batch of activists that saw a bunch of useful tools in postmodernism and grafted them onto their activism, or as we put it in the book, that twisted postmodernism to their purposes. And I don't care which of those two perspectives that you want to take up, that they twisted postmodernism to their purposes and let it continue, which is a case we make in cynical theories. Both of these perspectives are actually correct, and I think it's kind of a 50-50 split of the two things being true at the same time. Or you could say that the critical theory activists picked up the tools of selectively, I should say, picked up the tools of postmodernism and uh, used those to to make their critical theory invincible. Both of those two interpretations are ultimately saying the same thing, but they're framed slightly differently. And this sentence is where it happened because what they wanted to do was identity politics. What Kimberly Crenshaw wants to do in this paper is identity politics. And if we uh, question the ways in which meaning is socially constructed, which is generally sound. If we take that too far, though, it sometimes misreads the meaning of social construction and distorts its political relevance. In other words, you can't do identity politics with it. That's why we see applied postmodernism from this paper so clearly. That sentence in particular, when you understand what it's arguing about, understanding the context in which uh, Crenshaw is writing this paper. So she goes on, I don't want to belabor the birth of applied postmodernism too much here. Um, one version of anti-essentialism embodying what might be called the vulgarized social construction theorist, uh, thesis is that since all categories are socially constructed, there's no such thing as, say, blacks or women. And thus it makes no sense to continue reproducing those categories by organizing around them. Um, there's an important kind of footnote here. We'll come back to that in just a second. But she says it's a vulgarized constru social constructionist theorist that, uh, thesis that they, that they went too far. The original postmodernists went too far with their, their social constructivism in saying that categories like blacks and women don't intrinsically mean anything. It could, and it, why? Why does that matter? Because if, you, if they don't mean anything, how can you organize around them? How can you create a coalition around them? How can you do identity politics? That's our whole point. Um, just as an aside before we get to that footnote, though, um, I keep bringing up Hegel. I'm just going to point out the Hegelian nature of what's going on here. The vulgarized social construction thesis. Well, what is, what's Hegel about? You have a thesis, and then you hit it with its antithesis, and that allows you to get to a synthesis, some higher idea. So you take a thing, and you break it down. You negate it with its antithesis. You take its thesis, and you, give it, you, you negate it with its antithesis, and then you have those broken pieces, and you can put them together to see a bigger, broader hole in the synthesis. 
That's the Hegelian dialectic. So she's saying that the postmodernists have presented a social construction thesis, and she's about to negate it. She's about to do a Hegelian-style dialectic that negates that statement to a broader synthesis that she calls intersectionality. I'm telling you, the Hegel in this stuff, you have to know what you're looking for by the time you get to theorists writing in 1991. They're not talking about Hegel the way that Marcuse did on every third page or the way that Horkheimer and Adorno talked about, especially Horkheimer talked about him all the time. They're not talking, Horkheimer and, and Marcuse, two of the big critical theorists, talked about Hegel all the time. Gramsci talked about Hegel all the time. These guys talked, Kimberly Crenshaw doesn't mention Hegel. It's not even clear that Kimberly Crenshaw knows Hegel. Maybe she does. She's a lawyer, though. It's not her job to study philosophers. Um, it's unlikely she knows Hegel, but here she's using the Hegelian dialectic on postmodernism. Postmodernism presents a social construction thesis. I'm about to hit it with its antithesis that we can create a synthesis called intersectionality. It's profound. That I'm really serious when I say that this is ultimately a Hegelian religion uh, in the vein of the so-called young Hegelians. The he legacies of, he of Hegel are varied and complex and distorted. But anyway, Hegel's here. Hegel's presence is definitely felt uh, in that regard. The, the, the dialectical process that is critical theory, that is alchemy um, at its heart, which of course I mentioned, you know, that that was cited uh, a book with alchemy and its title was cited i mentioned that in the first part um is brought up here to say that social constructivism goes too far because uh, it gets rid of categories like blacks or women which would not allow identity politics on them so that's the reason for the antithesis so we now no no those categories are important for something and we'll be able to show you in the i'll be able to show you here in the in the this this, this part of the the series why that happens and how that that negation to synthesis to intersectionality then happens but first we'll dive into this um telling footnote i think it's telling if i recall correctly i do not mean she writes the footnote on the sentence to imply that all theorists who have made anti-essentialist critiques have lapsed into vulgar construction constructionism Indeed, anti-essentialists avoid making these troubling moves and would no doubt be receptive to much of the critique set forth herein that's a fun statement, really. That's one of those things when we wrote How to Have Impossible Conversations. Um, near the end, we talk about uh, uh, alter casting, this idea in marketing where you cast somebody into a role and then they want to live up to that. They have a social pressure to live up to that, to see themselves as the thing that you, you know, you see yourself as the guy on vacation. You see yourself as the person saving the day if you have, you know, whatever product it is or in marketing. So alter casting, she's kind of alter casted here, right? She's like, oh, not everybody's a vulgar creationist. Some anti-essentialists avoid making this mistake, uh, and they would be very receptive to what I've argued. You know, so, so now, I mean, this is that's a psychological uh, marketing technique right there. If you, by the way, she says I use the term vulgar constructionism to distinguish between those anti-essentialist critiques that leave room for identity politics and those that do not. So the ones that don't leave room for identity politics are vulgar. You wouldn't want to be vulgar, would you? Academic, reading this academic paper, you wouldn't want to be vulgar, would you? No, you're not vulgar if and only if you leave room for identity politics. So we're about to push this dialectical process. Um, and so let's carry on. 
uh, she now accuses the Supreme Court. She says, even the Supreme Court has gotten into this act. In Metro Broadcasting Inc. versus FCC, the court conservatives and rhetoric that oozes vulgar constructionist smugness, lots of emotionally charged words there for an academic paper, proclaimed that any set-aside designed to increase the voices of minorities on the airwaves was itself based on a racist assumption that skin color is in some way connected to the likely content of one's broadcast. So here's an interesting place. This is standpoint epistemology. Um, I know that it's a little weird. I want this to be more timeless, but for those who paid attention to CPAC this year, 2021, there was a panel on the last day uh, just before Trump spoke at CPAC where you had black conservative women saying that we have to put the identity back into politics uh, on the argument that they will be heard better by people uh, who identify with that experience or with that image. And standpoint epistemology, as it's taken root in intersectionality, has the same idea that skin color isn't itself likely to dictate how one's content will come forth, but rather that it gives one the lived experience necessary to say certain things with authority. And so um, she's saying that the court conservative said that it is a racist assumption to say that your skin color has anything to do with what's going to come out of your mouth. And I would side with them in this. Uh, whereas other people, including these activists or these women at CPAC, uh, so conservatives of today, 30 years later, um, we live in a much more postmodern world, in a much more woke world, but alongside them, the the feminists and activists of Crenshaw's day and all the woke activists in between pushing for this standpoint epistemology that one's experience as determined by one's uh, identity category, or in, which is often determined in some sense by something like skin color. I mean, light-skinned black people and dark-skinned black people are still black people and still allegedly have the black experience, but then there's colorism that says they don't have the same one, and they all fight with each other over that. But uh, it's a little more nuanced the way they make the argument than just skin color. But she's arguing on behalf of, yeah, we are going to need some kind of... Uh, some kind of... Um, standpoint epistemology here and because the evil conservatives oozed vulgar constructionism by being against it. And so she goes on to say, but to say that a category such as race or gender is socially constructed is not to say that that category has no significance in our world. Uh-huh. Now we're going to get to that point where she, um, presents the antithesis, right? So the thesis, the vulgar or vulgarized social construction thesis, is all categories are socially constructed, which is probably true for the most part, if not totally with regard to race, um, barring superficial characteristics that have no noticeable impact on one's intellectual capacities or character. Um, and then she also mentions women, so sex, but it's pretty obvious that sex is biological in nature, except if you're a vulgar social constructionist, I guess. Um, I did that on purpose. Yes, I know the altar casting thing and the whole thing. I know. I did it on purpose. Calm down. Um, so she says that, we're, you know, that's your thesis, right? Your vulgar construction, your social construction thesis that now has to be presented with its antithesis. Well, there's the antithesis. 
But to say that a category such as race or gender is socially constructed is not to say, not to say there's a negation, that category, that that category has no significance in our world. So there's some significance. You're not seeing the whole picture. Alfhaben. That's the idea in the dialectic. Alfhaben. Take apart but keep. And so there it is. Um, this is where she presents a Hegelian antithesis to this vulgar social construction thesis of postmodernism. So she is doing the Hegelian process to refine and perfect postmodernism as Hegel's dialectic would refine and perfect uh, ideas alchemically. Um, so she writes, on the contrary, now justifying her antithesis, a large and continuing project for subordinated people, subordinated is, by the way, just asserted here because we were just talking about racial categories, now they're subordinated. Uh, so that's just asserted into the story, maybe in 1991, I won't belabor the point. And indeed, she writes, one of the projects for which postmodern theories have been very helpful is thinking about the way power has clustered around certain categories and is exercised against others. Um, technically, their arguments were about cultures and times and places, uh, though certainly Foucault was very interested in madness as a category, as a socially constructed category, uh, to be distinguished from just being insane because he wanted to point out that dissidents were often called mad. I can relate to that um, for sure. And then excluded from acceptable discourse, they're not very smart people, they're mad. And some of them might have actually been insane, whereas others of them might have just been off the party line or outside the country club, as it were. So um, that was Foucault's point about madness. He did the same thing that with, with sexuality uh, in his history of sexuality pretty deeply. Um, but other than that, Foucault typically was talking about cultures like uh, 18th century France or something like that, not talking so much about racial categories that it's probably the case that Foucault would have been horrified by the idea of racial cultures being, you know, being considered the way that he he's talking about things. Maybe not totally. It depends on how he would have evolved through the 70s and 80s on that issue. Um, but he died in 84, and that was all she wrote on that matter. So Crenshaw carries on. After mentioning how power clusters around certain categories and is exercised against others, that being a key component of value in postmodernism, she says this project uh, attempts to unveil the processes of subordination and the various ways those processes are experienced by people who are subordinated and people who are privileged by them. So now we have the uh, Marxian conflict theory being brought in. So when people say that this is this is ultimately like, they say cultural Marxism, but it's about identity. So it's really like identity Marxism or some form of neo-Marxism. This is a neo-Marxist assumption applied to uh, categories. But if those categories are um, proletariat versus bourgeoisie, you know, that's Marxism. And if they are white versus black, that's critical race theory. Um, and if they are uh, kind of the people who are winning in a cop capitalist consumer society versus the people who are your everyday middle class working schlub, uh, that's going to be in your kind of critical theorist toolkit from the, you know, mid-century, mid-20th century. Um, but she's separating the world into those who are uh, subordinated and those who are privileged by these processes of subordination in society um, and putting them as, as stratified social social categories that are intrinsically in conflict, which was ultimately what Marxism was really about. Um, 
in it that, that's actually called conflict theory. So you can see that that is one of her underlying assumptions and approaches is that there's a conflict between the privileged versus the subordinated, which replace, replaces the uh, conflict between the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. Uh, same underlying uh, framework, new terms, slightly new, uh, new groups and stratification across those groups. It is then, she writes, a project that presumes that categories have meaning and consequences. And this project's most pressing problem in many, if not most cases, is not the existence of the categories, but rather the particular values attached to them and the way those values foster and create social hierarchies. So this is the justification. This is how she presents the antithesis to the thesis of vulgar constructionism. So here what she's doing is trying to do a dialectic on, in the Hegelian sense, but following the Marx, Marxian approach that he derived from Hegel, uh, or the neo-Marxist approach that derived from Marx by replacing uh, more Hegel back into Marx, um, this is where she's justifying her antithesis that social, that, that categories like race and sex, which is a peculiar one in reality, uh, really are socially constructed, but that's not to make the mistake that the postmodernists mean made to say that they, that they, they have no meaning, Be that their social constructedness means that they're not real, that they're con that they exist in a linguistic economy of difference. It's, you know, basically a fancy pants way of saying that they're linguistic constructs that involve uh, dominance and subordination, better and worse, valuative uh, positions. Okay, so she wants to say these categories still matter. Why? Because they are, there are impacts within our world. And it, what she's saying, though, so let me just clarify, the postmodernists kind of take into their logical conclusion would have done away with something like racism by saying that the races are socially constructed categories and that's just a linguistic construct. So we don't have to acknowledge the existence of the races. We can deconstruct the idea of race. Same with gender. Gender is socially constructed, so we can get rid of the idea of gender. This is basically what the feminists saw in postmodernism that made them glom onto it. Is, oh, we can completely deconstruct the ideas of race and sex, and then there's no racism and sexism anymore. Or race and, I should say, gender. And then, then you know, men can be men and women can be women, but there's no expectation on what a man should be. There's no expectation on what a woman should be. That was very typical of kind of um, maybe late uh, second wave feminism that kind of thought. And so that would have been the kind of the postmodern approach that would have would have done that, but they would have also applied it to sex. You know, Judith Butler took up post-structuralism specifically so that she could completely deconstruct the idea of gender. And then this, so she could then tag along and say, well, maybe sex should be deconstructed too, because that's really where gender is believed to come from. So maybe that's just a, social, a socially imposed category as well. So the, the postmodern view would be that if we could just see these things as socially imposed categories, we could stop seeing them as socially imposed categories since they have no basis in reality, just our language and our social imposition. Thus, we could free people from the suffering caused by being stuck in those categories. You can't be racist if they're, if race doesn't mean anything. You can't be sexist if sex doesn't mean anything relevant. And the original people who took this up in that regard saw gender as a relevant variable, which should be completely deconstructed, but then it then extended into sex. Um, queer theory really kind of does the same thing with sexuality as well, in addition to sex and gender. Uh, so what she's saying is, it's not, you know, but she's saying postmodernism has it right in the sense that it's not the existence of the categories that's the problem. It's the values that are attached to them, which she will say society has attached those values. 
Um, and that the, 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 then they're then used to create social hierarchies, which, of course, according to these um, ultimately Marxist-type thinkers, uh, social hierarchies are all bad by nature. They can't possibly be good. They only lead to oppression. Because uh, if somebody something is above, then something must be below, and that means dominance and oppression. Conflict theory, bad. Okay, so you got to get rid of that and create perfect, uh, a perfect leveling of the playing field, total equity, uh, as it would be put now. Um, maybe total equality in an earlier time or ideal democracy where everybody's on a perfect level with one another, or as they put it in Maoist China, man, woman, boy, girl, we are all the same. Um, so what she's saying then is that these values are attached and because those values are attached, that's something people can't control. So we can't just get rid of the categories willy-nilly. And the postmodernists would have argued, yeah, we can, and that will fix the problem. And she says, ultimately, that's naive. Um, and like I said, the reason is because the categories are not created for constructed from within, they are imposed from without. Uh, and I think that that's actually an inversion. I think that's historically true and largely an inversion of what was going on by the time she was writing this and certainly more of an inversion 20 years after she wrote this, which would be 10 years ago now. Um, so anyway, she says, this is not to deny the process of categorization is itself an exercise of power. So not to deny that means it's still an exercise of power to categorize things. She says, but the story is much more complicated and nuanced than that. First, the process of categorizing, or in identity terms, naming, is not unilateral. This is the key. Subordinated people can and do participate, sometimes even in subverting the naming process in empowering ways. But, this isn't her speaking, this is me, but they only sometimes do, right? So subordinated people don't really get to do this. And this is going to be a really important paragraph. Um, so, we're, so there's not an equal participation. Her claim is that the categories are imposed from the powerful onto the subordinated. In other words, white people created the races so that white could be held up and black could be held down. That's anti-blackness, which apparently all brown and yellow people are also complicit in now. And I don't like to even say yellow people. It's kind of weird. Um, the Asians and uh, all other people that get lumped into the brown category uh, are also apparently anti-black as long or along with white people are anti-black. The argument in critical race theory is that these categories were produced so that white people could create a hierarchy out of the races, all of which would be anti-black. That's Derek Bell's famous book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, where he argues that black people, no matter what, are always at the bottom of society. That was published in 1992, whereas this was a 1991 paper. So that's kind of the thought of critical race theory in the early 1990s. Um, and so the claim is that society, in particular the powerful of society, are imposing the categories on the subordinated. So the subordinated don't have equal participation in these naming of identity categories or the, the categorizing process. And so since they don't have equal participation, all of a sudden you can't get away from that which is imposed upon you. It's a bourgeois view to believe that you can get away from that which is being imposed upon you. And in fact, this is a key thing to applied postmodernism, the key thing to wokeness is that it is it was a bourgeois um privileged is the word for bourgeois now privileged point of view you have to have privilege like racial privilege to be able to say that a racial category is socially constructed and therefore can be deconstructed because if you experience the oppression based on 
that system of oppression. If you experience that systemic oppression, you don't have a choice. You can't get away with it. It's being imposed upon you from without. So you don't have that privilege. Only white people have racial privilege to not have race imposed upon them. Black people in particular, but also brown people who aren't white adjacent enough cannot escape it. Their, their race is imposed upon them from without. And I said a moment ago that I feel like this argument has largely inverted. That's because I feel like the critical race view has taught people that are in these uh, allegedly subordinated racial categories, as we're about to see in the rest of this paragraph, which is a key paragraph of this paper, has taught them to essentialize themselves through experience. It's not real essentializing. It's through experience, the racial experience that you have, which is also imposed upon you. But they have the, the whole idea of cultural appropriation, however, is that you're not allowed to take from, you know, one of these cultures. There's this cultural protectionism. And so now blackness is going to be built up as good, as powerful, as uh, emancipatory, as empowering. Um, same with the empowerment of empowering by leaning into what it is to be a woman and not probably in traditional ways, uh, only in kind of radical ways. This this thing is actually the imposition of the category from within by claiming that it's being imposed from without and that what's happening from within is just a reaction to what's actually happening from without. And so you have like this perfectly, it's a complicated idea, but it's a perfectly closed system where you can blame somebody else for say racializing a situation by saying they're automatically racializing it. So when I bring up race, I'm just challenging the fact that they're already racializing it. So racialization becomes deracialization. Segregating becomes desegregating. And you end up with all this very Orwellian nonsense that we're all like, how in the world do they think like this? This is how they think like this. If you believe that the categories are imposed on you from without and that you can't do anything about it and it takes privilege to ignore the categories. In fact, it's a feature of privilege to be able to ignore the categories. Uh, by definition, then you can claim that by bringing up the categories and leaning into the categories, as we're going to see in this paragraph, that you are challenging that problem. So, de so segregation becomes desegregation, and racializing becomes deracializing, and discriminating becomes anti-discriminatory. Pure Orwell. And, but there is, there is the, if you wanted to understand the logic behind how they get there, that is, that is it. And that's, this is where it's coming from, this paper. So she says, um, subordinated people can and do participate, sometimes even subverting the naming process in empowering ways. One need only think about the historical subversion of the category black or the current transformation of queer to understand that categorization is not a one-way street. So what's happening is the Black is Beautiful movement, as you'll mention, Black liberation, Black nationalism, Black power, are all saying, no, Black is black is power, Black is good, Black is beautiful. And um, with the queer, you know, the queer theorists began to identify as queer, which formerly was a slur. They would identify by other slurs as well, but it used to be, you know, queer was a slur against gay people. Well, the queer theorists, listen, they even named their theory queer theory, decided to adopt that. This is a project called strategic essentialism. Oh, it's a variation on strategic essentialism where one leans into the alleged power dynamic contained in language or categorization and then inverts the power dynamic involved. So all of a sudden, you're now going to take on the uh, 
the thing that you're being accused of, like queerness, and you're going to wear that as a badge of as a badge of honor or a badge of pride. Um, and so, queer theorists took this to an extreme, and they literally turned into a verb. Yeah, we're going to queer literature. We're going to queer everything. We're going to queer your mom. Um, we're going to queer sexuality. We're going to make things more and more and more queer. And I am, you know, if you talk to gay activists from the time when this paper was being written in the 1990s, they're very frustrated with the queer activists because the queer activists were telling them that they weren't really authentically gay unless they were being queer. This, of course, erupted around Pete Buttigieg in the uh, 2020 Democratic primary uh, run up where he was accused of not being authentically gay because he wasn't queer because he wanted to do things like, you know, wear normal suits and regular clothes and articles were written like he might be married to a man, but he's not, you know, really gay because he wasn't, because <laughs> he wasn't a queer activist. So the, the, the queers, the queer activists and the, uh, LGBT activists, uh, have been the Q's and the LGBT within the alphabet people, if you will, have been at loggerheads for many decades. Um, and people don't understand, for example, that the queer project here, because things have to be queer, well, marriage is normative and normal and makes things calm. So they've been against gay marriage all along. LGBT activists were for, for marriage equality. Queer activists were very much and still are very much not because it normalizes being what they see as queer uh, and therefore steals steals away its its revolutionary potential. And the LGBT activists in general, when they're not also queer activists, uh, tend not to appreciate this. And they they've really hated each other. My, my friend Andrew Sullivan told me in person one time that he said that if he would have had to be queer, he never would have come out. Uh, and he was spent, spent much of the 90s and 80s fighting with the, I think at least the 90s, fighting with these people uh, over these issues very vigorously. Um, so like I said, the issue for her is going to be the unequal power. And so she acknowledges that there can be this kind of strategic essentialism fighting back to, to disrupt or deconstruct the naming process to, to put power back into, uh, disempowered categories. No black is beautiful, black power, um, you know, that kind of thing, or, uh, you know, the queer activism wearing the idea of queerness, yeah. You could even maybe to a degree say gay pride, but that's a little more complicated. And I've already touched that third rail a couple times in my life, and we're not going to do it again today. Um, but then she goes into this and explicitly says, clearly there is unequal power. So this is why her negation of the vulgar social construction theory is works. Clearly there is unequal power. But there's nonetheless some degree of agency that people can and do exert in the politics of naming. And it is important to note that the identity continues to be a site. It's really interesting because she goes, she kind of forgets her own point because she gets so excited about establishing identity politics. But anyway, uh, and it is important to note that identity continues to be a site of resistance for members of different subordinated groups. So in other words, identity is important because it's, an, it's a site of, of resistance. We can lean into identity and resist as a group. Um, identity politics depends upon us to be able to do that. That's her point. So therefore, we can't, social, we can't just socially, or sorry, just can't deconstruct um, or can't just deconstruct the categories like race or gender, or as she even says, sex. We, we can't just do that because there's identity politics if we don't. And that comes from the fact that there's unequal power in the systemic power dynamics, which is 
the underlying assumption of the entire project of critical theory is that there's these power dynamics in the identity categories by the time we get past the 19 into the 1960s and going forward. And again, this comes out of radical feminism, which definitely saw it that way, and it comes out of um, black liberationism, which definitely comes out of that tradition, uh, if we can call it a tradition, uh, that line of thought, anyway, that philosophy. So um, it is important, she said, like I just read, to note that identity continues to be a site of resistance for members of different subordinated groups, i.e. identity politics are possible. And she says, this is so important. We can we all can recognize the distinction between the claims, I am black, that's with a capital B, and the claim, I'm a person who happens to be black, also a capital B, just to be clear. I am black, she says, takes the socially imposed, what did I tell you, socially imposed, it came from outside, so you have to deal with it, takes the socially imposed identity and empowers it as an anchor of subjectivity, a little too much postmodernism there, but it, you understand yourself as a subject, as a as an entity, uh, in terms of it. So here's where she is racializing a thing, by and claiming it is deracializing a thing. She doesn't say that explicitly, right? We can all recognize the distinction between the claims I am black and the claim the claims I am black and the claim I am a person who happens to be black. I am black takes the socially imposed power made me have to see myself as black. It racialized me already, and it empowers it as an anchor of subjectivity. So power made me see myself as black, she's writing, but I can lean into that and see it as a source of empowerment. I can understand myself that way and fight back. So I am deracializing by racializing, by saying I am black, by making my race more relevant, not less, versus I am black versus I am a person who happens to be black, by making myself more racially making my race more racially salient or more salient than not she's now saying that i can understand myself politically and make my identity into a source of politics it's an anchor of subjectivity so she's saying i'm going to deracialize an already racialized situation by racializing it that's the trick that's where it happened because it's a socially imposed identity. She then says, I am black becomes not simply a statement of resistance, but also a positive discourse of self-identification, intimately linked to celebratory statements like the black nationalist, black is beautiful, as I was just saying. Now she contrasts. I am a person who happens to be black, on the other hand, achieves self-identification by straining for a certain universality. In effect, I am first a person. And for a concomitant dismissal of the imposed category black as contingent, circumstantial, and non-determinant. Okay, so the other side of this, she's rejecting that I am a man. I am not a racial category. So if we go back to Memphis 1963, we look at the civil rights movement, we look at the placards the men carried. Go Google it. Or don't use Google, whatever. Go search this, look it up, type in I am a man, civil rights movement, and go to images. See what you see. You see many, many black people carrying signs that say, I am a man from the 1960s. I think they're all in black and white. There's a mural you can see in Memphis painted on the wall commemorating this. Their cry in the civil rights movement was, I'm like you. 
speaking to the white people who actually were systemically discriminating and institutionally discriminating in 1963 before the passage of the Civil Rights Act in violation of the 14th Amendment. She says, that's not good. She says, I am a person who happens to be black, achieve self-identification for by straining for a certain universality, which means there is no universality between whites and blacks or other racial groups. In effect, I am first a person. And what that carries with it is a concomitant dismissal of the fact that this is an imposed, as she said, category. And instead says, no, no, it's contingent. We can actually ignore that. It's circumstantial. Uh, it, it was more relevant in the past uh, before we before we overcame these issues to the degree that we have now. That it's non-determinant that Remember, they're not talking. They're anti-essentialist. Remember, but she's she's doing the the Hegelian thing to not to anti-essentialism to make they're going to essentialize by being anti-essentialist. Right? It's the same kind of thing. That's what this magical alchemical uh, process of Hegel does: is it makes nonsense out of combining opposites. So now we're going to be we're we're not going to be essentialist to I am black, we're going to say that black, because of the power dynamics in society, is determinant on what it means to have that skin color, which, of course, like I said, completely alienates all of the people who happen to be black, as it were, who don't agree, but that doesn't matter. They're supposed to have this essentialized experience, but they're not essentialized as people. They're essentialized in their experience. So we can be anti-essentialist and we can be race anti-essentialist and race essentialist at the same time. And we have this much more complex view called intersectionality that allows it. That's what's going on here. The thesis, antithesis, synthesis into this nonsense view that they believe that they're being anti-essentialist while essentializing through experience. And it's pure Hegel, by the way. It's pure Hegel. I'm telling you, it's a Hegelian religion. How do you know it's going to be a synthesis? Thesis, antithesis, synthesis? The two statements here now, right? So the thesis is the civil rights movement, the uh, all men are created equal. I am a person who happens to be black is the correct way that strains, she says, for a certain universality. In effect, I am first a person. The antithesis is I am black. And what? Of course, the process of dialectic is a finding a synthesis by colliding those opposites together and she writes, there is truth in both characterizations. Synthesis. There is truth in both characterizations, of course, but they function quite differently depending on the political context. At this point in history, a strong case can be made that the most critical resistance strategy for disempowered groups is to occupy and defend a politics of social location rather than to vacate and destroy it. So she's like, colorblindness, bad. That would vacate and destroy uh, a politics of social location. We should occupy that, she's arguing, instead, because it's a it's the most critical. Does she mean most necessary or most critical theory? Most critical resistance strategy for disempowered groups is to occupy and defend a politics of social location, of positionality, namely the one she's proposing, which is intersectionality. That's the synthesis. It depends on the context. It's complicated. It depends on the context. The political context. Is the category socially imposed? Well, as long as anybody can claim that they feel like it's socially imposed or politically imposed, 
you have to keep doing this. You have to keep doing this identity politics. And since that generates more identity politics, it's kind of a good grift. Vulgar constructionism, she, go, she goes on, thus distorts the possibilities for meaningful identity politics by conflating at least two separate but closely linked manifestations of power. One is the power exercised simply through the process of categorization. That's postmodernists are, so she's trying to nuance, if you will, but she's doing a Hegelian nuancing. Uh, she's doing a dialectical uh, analysis here. Uh, and the postmodern view of, of social construction of categories and thus of deconstruction. So what she's trying to do is she's trying to pull out as much deconstruction is going to be useful to her critical theory. So she's finding how much postmodernism can I take, which tools can I pull out of postmodernism and attach them to my critical theory, in essence, to base them on identity and therefore make them unfalsifiable, absolutely irrefutable. It's based in lived experience now. It's based in my truth. There is no the truth. That's what she's actually trying to figure out. How do I, how do I attach that to my critical theory so that I can continue to tear everything apart? Um, so one is the power to, to exercise simply through the process of categorization. That's the vulgar social construction thesis. That's what postmodernism did when it was written by white people like Foucault and Derrida, who are privileged white professor types, never mind that Foucault, well, he did have certain, I guess, privileges afforded to him, was a deeply repressed and uh, uh, gay man who, who had very um, dark sexual attitudes, and his father was very angry with him for not becoming a, doc uh, becoming a doctor and so on, uh, but certainly very repressed as a gay man, which led him to write these things as a dissident, treated like he was insane, which... Maybe he was, um, but he, maybe he wasn't either way. So uh, when, when, when these bougie white French guys write down that categories need to be deconstructed, that's the power exercised simply through the process of categorization. How vulgar. Uh, the other, though, the power to cause that categorization to have social and material consequences. When it's imposed, there are social and material consequences. She says, while the former power facilitates the latter to the existence of categories, being able to name the categories, who has the authority to name the categories, facilitates the ability to cause the categorization to have social and material consequences. She goes on, the political implications of challenging one over the other matter greatly. We can look at debates over racial subordination throughout history and see that in each instance there is a possibility of challenging either the construction of identity or the system of subordination based on that identity. She's creating a false dichotomy as if you couldn't do both. I am a man. You are mistreating me was the implication of that, right? So the civil rights movement is already a refutation of the thing she's doing. This is a complete by the way, reversal of the civil rights movement. This, this paper is, wokeness is a complete reversal of the civil rights movement. And this paper is one of the you know chief pieces of evidence, this part of the paper and the conclusion in particular. Um, but she says, you know, she creates this false economy. There's a possibility of challenging either the construction of identity, like that's what the postmodernists would do. The identity doesn't, you, I am a man. Uh, that was liberal. Uh, that's liberalism and postmodernism align here. Let's challenge the construction of identity. Let's say putting social significance into racial and other identity categories is a mistake that produces bigotry. 
Or, she says, you can challenge this, the system of subordination based on that identity, which uh, this is kind of everything, right? Is there a factual basis to uh, biological sex? Yes, there is. Uh, that, but that's a question according to the social constructionist, to the postmodernist, to the woke. Um, but it's a separate thing from looking at whether or not there is oppression. So a rational person who is properly and fully liberal, who accepts reality, would be able to say, yes, biological sex is a meaningful category that doesn't just touch upon the very, very superficial aspects like skin color or whatever, but may actually have uh, deeper implications in terms of like, say, motivations and behavior um, because of the differences between men and women, particularly where it comes to dating and mating. But we don't have to uh, subordinate any well, we don't have to subordinate the group. In other words, we don't have to. Dis- we, we we can be non-discriminatory. Um, so, if a woman doesn't want to become a traditional mother and all of the things associated socially, as they say, with femininity, um, if she doesn't want to do any of that, if she wants to buck all of that and wants to live a completely different life that does whatever it is, and maybe like lift heavy weights and fight mixed martial arts, and then study physics in her spare time and learn to code. I don't know, whatever the stereotypes that that they they like to buck are. A liberal would say those two things can be happening at once. We can challenge the system of of subordination and we can accept categories that make sense and reject categories that don't. Crenshaw's too busy criticizing to see that that's a possibility. And she goes straight into a very uh, famous landmark case. Consider, for example, the segregation system in Plessy versus Ferguson. So this was a a Supreme Court case, a very famous one, obviously, 1896. She says, at issue were multiple dimensions of domination, including categorization, 1896 also, by the way, just to draw up how how long earlier that was, Um, almost 100 years before, 95 years before this paper was written. At issue were multiple dimensions of domination, including categorization, the sign of race, and the subordination of those so labeled. There were at least two targets for Plessy to challenge the construction of identity, what is a black, and the system of subordination based on that identity, can blacks and whites sit together on a train. Plessy actually made both arguments, one against the coherence of race as a category, the other against the subordination of those deemed to be black. You see where this is going? It's going to point out, just like Hegel, that there's a contradiction here. We have to bring up the contradiction because it's a critical theory. In his attack on the former, Plessy argued that the segregations, the segregation statutes of application to him, given his mixed race status, was inappropriate. The court refused to see this as an attack on the coherence of the race system and instead responded in a way that simply reproduced the black-white dichotomy that Plessy was challenging. By the way, if you don't know, the the mixed race thing is actually a very fruitful point uh, for challenging what's going on with everything woke because um, there are inherent contradictions in the woke essentialist that's not essentialist uh, thing. You know, is a how do you deal with a mixed race person? You know, do they have that? Do, do they live as a as a as a white person or as a person of color or is it something else? What there's inherent contradictions there, and so this is a properly liberal deconstruction. I mean, there was no deconstruction in 1896. This is a proper liberal deconstruction of the concept of race that was being brought up through mixed race status 
uh, in Plessy. You see this abused with the trans movement that tries to bring up intersex that has nothing to do with trans, as though the rare conditions of intersex, and there are several of them, have, uh, therefore prove that biological sex is messy and confusing, where in fact biological sex is not messy and confusing uh, at all, and there are intersex situations that are understood or conditions, you're not supposed to call it that anymore for political correctness, but there are intersex conditions that are known, identified, understood. It's not always simple what you should do with these, uh, or it's not always like the the outcome is you, you're probably better off in general not having intersex than, inter, than, than, than having it. And so it's not a perfect outcome to have one of these conditions, but they, they don't complicate biological sex at all. No biologist is confused. No doctor that's not woke is confused by the existence of intersex to say that sex is no longer a stable category. The trans activists, uh, trans lobby uses the issue of intersex um, very uh, disingenuously to push its own sex doesn't mean anything or sex is a spectrum narrative. Um, But uh, mixed race is genuinely very deconstructive in a way that's somewhat different uh, and much more meaningful because biological sex is much more concrete and uh, than 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 biological race, which doesn't seem to have much going on below the, the skin level, as far as I can tell, at least. Um, So she writes, as we know, Plessy's challenge to the segregation system was not successful either. In evaluating various resistance strategies today, it is useful to ask which of Plessy's challenges would have been best for him to have won. The challenge against the coherence of of the racial categorization system or the challenge to the practice of segregation. Her argument ultimately is that, well, we'll just get to it. Um, But you see the contradiction, right? She's essentially saying he tried to argue that there's an unfair categorization based on race while simultaneously saying that race doesn't make any sense because I'm mixed race. So in a sense, he was sawing off the limb he was standing on, right? Because he refused to say that race, he tried to make a double argument, but in in a sense, the arguments are self-contradictory. That's sort of the point she's making. Uh, since she doesn't actually answer it right here immediately, we can go on. The, 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 the same question she writes can be posed for Brown versus Board of Education. This was a 1954 decision. This is also a favorite hobby horse of her mentor, Derek Bell, who said that it only created a raft of new problems for uh, African-Americans in desegregated schools. She says, which of two possible arguments was more politically empowering, that segregation was unconstitutional because the racial categorization system on which it was based is in, was incoherent, or that segregation was unconstitutional because it was injurious to black children and oppressive to their communities. While it might strike some as a difficult question, for the most part, the dimension of racial domination that has been most vexing to African Americans has not been the social categorization as such, but the myriad ways in which those of us so defined have been systematically subordinated. So what she's saying is it's not really been a problem that we've been labeled black, but it is a problem that the category is subordinated. And this is all imposed, right? Remember, we will be labeled black. But she says the real issue is the subordination here. Uh, So she she says, 
With regard to the problems confronting women of color, when identity politics fail us as they frequently do, it is not primarily because those politics take as natural certain categories that are socially constructed, but rather because the descriptive content of those categories and the narratives on which they are based have privileged some experiences and excluded others. So then she goes just She's leaned into these contradictions, and she wants to make the point that if we would have leaned into racial categories, um, we could have made these arguments better because we would have said that it's immoral to discriminate based on these categories. But if you if you saw off the branch you're standing on by saying, well, the categories don't even make sense anyway, which for most reasonable normal people actually doesn't saw off. I mean, you have to be a nitpicking lawyer for that to be a sawing off of the limb you're standing on. Most normal people interpret that as here's this bad thing, and then there's not even a rational basis for the bad thing. So it's even it's not even just bad, it's bad and stupid at the same time, which makes it worse, which is why they forward these arguments, but no, um, we're not going to see it that way. And she has to bring up, because we have to have more, uh, more salacious uh, feminist stuff going on here, she writes, along these lines, consider the Clarence Thomas-Anita Hill controversy. During the Senate hearings for the confirmation of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court, Anita Hill, in bringing allegations of sexual harassment against Thomas, was rhetorically disempowered in part because she fell between the dominant interpretations of feminism and anti-racism. In other words, if there was an intersectional uh, analysis, I don't know if you know the history. That I want to make sure I don't just repeat. Yeah, I'll just read her some more to explain what's going on. Caught between the competing narrative tropes of race advanced by feminists on the one hand and lynching advanced by Thomas and his anti-racist supporters on the other hand, the race and gender dimensions of her position could not be told. Okay. Um, the dilemma could be described as the consequence of anti-racism's essentializing blackness and feminism's essentializing womanhood. But recognizing as much does not take us far enough for the problem is not simply linguistic or philosophical in nature. We'll come back to this. So what was going on was that they accused, Anita Hill accused, accused Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment and Clarence Thomas's uh, supporters and himself came back and said, believing that the, he, he said that these allegations were bogus and that it was, the fact is that he was a very conservative judge and you've seen recently, you know, many cases of controversy around different judges and appointments to judges, Kavanaugh, et cetera. Well, or even Amy Coney Barrett, um, this is kind of a thing that happens around Supreme Court appointments. And so Clarence Thomas said that this was all an illegitimate attack on him and being that he is he was black and there have not been a lot of black men on the uh, Supreme Court, he also claimed that it was tantamount to a professional, not literal, lynching, and it was uh, going after a black man by playing into tropes of his, uh, you know, sexual aggressiveness or whatever as a black man. Um, and so anti-racism, Crenshaw's argument throughout the whole paper is that anti-racism and feminism land at loggerheads. And then somebody like, in, in situations like this, because feminism wants the sexual assault charge to land and anti-racism's like, don't knock down a black guy who's about to get in a big position. And so they end up in loggerheads in, the, in this situation. And uh, the problem is then that people like Anita Hill can't possibly get justice. And that's why you need intersectionality to apparently bring up the fact that she's a black woman specifically or you know something like this um actually don't know if anita hill is a black woman i don't know that history correctly and i'm not going to search it right now um anyway she writes that this dilemma could be described as a consequence of anti-racism's essentializing blackness so 
Clarence Thomas is black. It's uh, you know very important that we that we understand that black people have been treated particular ways, and therefore we're not going to knock the black guy out. Um, and feminism's essentializing womanhood. Uh, that's where the the side of the loggerheads are. So you know, womanhood is as feminism puts it. You know, this kind of constant series of violence against women, and therefore it's very important that they score the sexual assault charge against him. Um, which we saw play out exactly kind of the same, but without the racial dimension with Kavanaugh and his appointment. Um, and the race thing came up with Amy Coney Barrett. So, you know, time is a flat circle, everybody. And she says, but recognizing as much does not take us far enough, for the problem is not simply linguistic or philosophical in nature. It is specifically political. Of course, everything's political. The narrative, the narratives of gender are based on the experience of white middle-class women, and the narratives of race are based on the experiences of black men. Just asserted. Just asserted. Um, but this is the point of her mapping the margins paper, that black women are in the margins of the black male-dominated anti-racist movement, meaning black liberationist movement particularly, and the white middle-class women in feminism, both liberal and, but especially radical. The solution, she writes, does not merely entail arguing for the multiplicity of identities or challenging essentialism generally. Instead, in Hill's case, for example, it would have been necessary to assert those crucial aspects of her location that were erased even by her by many of her advocates. That is, to state what difference her difference made. This is just postmodern words, to state what difference her difference made and point out her social location. So in other words, to make a case that she's like this ultimate victim as a black woman who's getting erased by this feminist versus anti-racist argument that's happening around her and leaving her story out. Um, again, it being a sexual assault charge, we mentioned earlier that those are those are sticky and difficult because they're very difficult to prosecute. And then when you're, as we saw even with Kavanaugh, um, they're very difficult to do anything with when it's something like whatever Clarence Thomas was being accused of with her, the sexual assault that, that she was alleging to try to disqualify him from being able to sit on the Supreme Court. Um, it's funny how, you know, they say this is political and then they're talking about a thing where it came up where it was actually a political appointment, but that's beside the point. <sighs> so Crenshaw again, if, as this analysis asserts, history and context determine the utility of identity politics, how, do we, how then do we understand identi identity politics today, especially in light of our recognition of multiple dimensions of identity? More specifically, what does it mean to argue that gender identities have become obscured in anti-racist discourses, just as race identities have been obscured in feminist discourses? Does this mean that we cannot talk about identity? Or instead, that any discourse about identity has to acknowledge how our identities are constructed through the intersection of multiple dimensions? A beginning response to these questions requires that we first recognize that the organized identity groups in which we find ourselves are in fact coalitions, or at least potential coalitions waiting to be formed. So this is a paragraph, she's at the conclusion of the paper, she's putting forth a bunch of questions, rhetorical questions to kind of frame out what she wants to say. Do we not talk about identity anymore? Um, what do we? How do we deal with the fact that, as she is asserting anyway, well, what do we do about multiple locations of identity, dimensions of identity? What do we do with the fact that gender is obscured by race and that race is obscured by gender when those two things uh, intersect or collide because they're seen as different when she said that they are essentially are not different. They are, in fact, part and parcel with one another. And uh, 
so she, then she says, does that mean that any discourse about identity has to acknowledge how they are constructed through the intersection of multiple dimensions? That's positionality, which must be intentionally engaged now. So that seems to be an affirmative question, answer to that question. And she says that the beginning response to these questions requires that we first recognize that the organized identity groups in which we find ourselves are in fact coalitions or at least potential coalitions waiting to be formed through solidarity which I've argued many times with intersectionality is going to always be designed to favor the particular group that designed it because that's how everything like this works and these things are written by people who are both in terms of power, opportunity, or money um, grifters. Um, what she's essentially saying is we can form gigantic identity coalitions around the idea of intersectionality that are going to support the queer, black, feminist, socialist identity politics of uh, the black feminism that she unrepentantly takes up, as she said very explicitly in a footnote that we covered in the first part. And there, we can form a big coalition where we use solid, intersectional solidarity to kick uh, everything in that direction. By the way, that is also the essential argument of the uh, fake paper we wrote where we wrote a chapter of Mein Kampf as intersectional feminism is the exact same thing as this uh, sentence um, that solidarity ultimately to form a coalition movement uh, is, is a necessary way to think about things and that's what intersectionality gives us. So forming a our party or our movement coalition force around solidarity as mediated through intersectionality was the concept that we grafted onto Hitler's uh, argument for why they needed a, a Nazi movement um, that would demand sacrifices of people for the movement, etc. Uh, we just said that there would have to be sacrifices for intersectionality instead. Same argument. So that sentence is actually uh, more or less what was going on in that paper, although obviously Crenshaw didn't write Hitler. But it's the same call to solidarity around a political grievance movement that Hitler was calling to uh, that can't actually be denied. That's why that paper worked. Um, that's why the Feminist Social Work Journal accepted that paper to be uh, published. So we've got two paragraphs left of Crenshaw. We'll carry on. In the context of anti-racism, recognizing the ways in which the intersectional experiences of women of color are marginalized and prevailing conceptions of identity politics does not require that we give up attempts to organize as communities of color. Rather, intersectionality provides a basis for reconceptualizing race as a coalition between men and women of color. So pause for a second. We'll get to there. She starts with four examples, so it's an awkward place to pause. But what she says, what she's saying here then is um, that we need to be awake to the fact or woke to the fact, although that's a few years down the road still, about 17 years down the road at least, we need to be kind of woke to the fact that um, women of color have intersectional experiences and those get marginalized. They get pushed to the edges. They are oppressed by prevailing concepts of identity politics, meaning feminism and black liberationism, that are focused either on black issues or women's issues, not specifically black women's issues. Now, but that doesn't mean we have to give up, she says, on organizing as communities of color, because rather intersectionality provides a basis for reconceptualizing race as a coalition. There's your solidarity point here again, between men and women of color. For example, she writes, in the area of rape, intersectionality provides a way of explaining why women of color have to abandon the general argument 
that the interests of the community require the suppression of any confrontational any confrontation around intraracial intraracial rape. Okay, so we didn't go through the middle part of the paper because we didn't want to read all 60 pages into a microphone, or I didn't, and you probably didn't want to listen to a seven or eight part series on this paper. But that's one of the essential arguments is that uh, that she makes is that rape of black women by black men in particular is suppressed, is not dealt with, uh, especially within the black community, but also it's not dealt with by, say, police officers uh, because they don't want to talk about the statistics because the goal of the black liberation or the, the anti-racist polit- identity politics says don't make black men look bad. Don't encourage the stereotype of black men being violent or don't encourage the stereotype of, of black men uh, being rapists. Those are stereotypes that are harming the black community in general. Don't encourage them, so don't report black-on-black rape. That's what her argument is, and she says that this upholds a form of patriarchy, and honestly, she has some point uh, to that. I think that the you know just being honest would be a great way to go about dealing with these problems and trying to minimize the placement of uh, social significance into categories, um, and to deal with the problems honestly, but she instead says intersectionality. This is her again. Intersectionality may provide the means for dealing with other marginalizations as well. For example, race can also be a coalition of straight and gay people of color and thus serve as a basis for critique of churches and other cultural institutions that reproduce heterosexism. It's interesting that she mentions churches and cultural institutions specifically there, um, given you know the Gramscian idea that the culture itself has to be taken apart, which gets reproduced in um, the critical theorists. For example, Marcuse, who is very interested in the Aufheben der Kultur in German, which is to say the, the dialectical or Hegelian-style negation of culture. Aufheben is negation in that translation or abolishment of culture. It's to tear it apart. And then when you read... Gramsci, he talks about the cultural institutions being that which upholds cultural hegemony, so those have to be slowly disrupted and dismantled, but they also have to be infiltrated and filled with a counter-hegemony from within, and that the main cultural institutions he names are, in fact, religion, the family, uh, media, education, and law. So the fact that the churches and other cultural institutions that reproduce heterosexism are mentioned here explicitly ties her into that uh, tradition. So we have to use, she's arguing that she says intersectionality can, race through intersectionality can be, be the site of a coalition of straight and gay people of color. So we're going to talk about the intersectional aspect that, oh, you're a person of color, I'm a person of color, you're straight, I'm gay. Now we can form a coalition around the idea that we're both people of color, and then somehow we can use that race critique in the churches to attack a, a hetero sexism or heteronormativity thing. We see this actually playing out as uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, the um, the Presbyterian Church of America, the, a lot of many of the Catholic organizations are all taking on critical race theory and specifically intersectionality. We see exactly that thing happening. It's particularly poignant in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is, I guess, rather famous for reproducing heterosexism um, or in homophobia, if you will. Um, because they believe quite fundamentally that 
the the Bible indicates that, that homosexuality is abomination against God and therefore sin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this argument is that through intersectionality, we can now turn race and then the accusation of racism by using straight and gay people of color in a coalition around race to thus advance an argument that weakens the standing of the churches and these other cultural institutions so that they can break down heterosexism. So all of a sudden it's like, wow, if you're trying to beat on an institution like the Southern Baptist Convention that believes it has a commandment from God that homosexuality is a sin, and so it can't compromise on that because they believe it's a commandment from God. They have no room to compromise on that, and you want to, you want to dismantle their, their if, if it's homophobia or heterosexism or whatever it is, if you want to dismantle that and you can't get there because they believe it's a commandment from God, oh, well, we can form a way to do this using intersectionality by coming in through race. In other words, we can create the kind of backdoor that the Marxists were describing in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s uh, to um, get inside the issue through intersectionality. So what they would do is talk about race first to get in the door. Oh, well, there's a racism problem. You don't deny there's a racism problem. Then once you get inside, wham, now you're going to expand it and say, well, look at all how all these forms of oppression, um, now that you've already got people problematizing themselves, look at all these forms of oppression intersect, and now you're also problematizing against this. Now, I'm not a big fan of homophobia, and I don't um, agree with the... Uh, Southern Baptist interpretation on that, for example, but that's for them to have as a matter of their faith. And I do believe that uh, while you're welcome to make whatever arguments you want, that there's something disgusting about getting and infiltrating and subverting a group, and there's something much worse about the state than deciding uh which I know that's not in this argument, but just to make the point, a state coming the state coming in and deciding that it is going to dictate the, the contents of somebody's conscience. In fact, I don't think it's anybody's business what's inside somebody's conscience. People ask me a lot, just as, as an aside, since it comes up a lot, I've thought about doing a podcast about it myself on this specific topic. How is it possible that I can work with Southern Baptists, whom I have so many disagreements with uh, on, I guess, what are fundamental issues? Um, and the answer is actually pretty simple, that I believe that it's a matter of their own conscience and their own volitional will to join a church community and that they have the right to believe into group as they want and will as a result. And um, if gay people don't like it, they don't have to go to that church. There are other churches. If they had total cultural hegemony, that would be something to be worried about. But we've discussed in previous episodes of this podcast, you know, the idea of poppers paradox of tolerance. And if secularism is firmly in place, uh, then the idea is really that no faith in particular is going to gain cultural hegemony and be able to control the others. And so um, I don't see that there's a problem. I don't have a problem with gay-friendly churches. And if people in the Southern Baptist Convention do, that's their faith, that's their business, and you, me, nobody else has to join that. And you can look at it with all the disdain you want. But it's a different thing to mandate that they have to change that, which is certainly a violation of the First Amendment. Um, but it's also pretty gross and something principle in principle the same thing to 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 say that you need to infiltrate and. Uh, and subvert that or create massive amounts of pressure. And then there's something really disingenuous here in the intersectional argument that you're going to use a different issue altogether, race, to get in the door. And I will tell you, this is exactly something that is happening in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. Um, I don't agree with that particular belief, and I think it's 
those people's belief or those people's rights to hold that belief. And if they want to form a church, then the church preaches that belief. It is the right of that church to hold and preach that belief, even though I would view the belief as intolerant and unnecessarily so. It is their belief. It's not my business to dictate what they can and can't believe, what they can and can't preach, what they can and cannot join volitionally around. But if somebody wants to leave that church, say they find that view unpleasant or offensive, they should be able to leave it as well. But it's something just awful about the idea that we're going to use a completely different issue to come in, infiltrate, change the culture from within, and then use that to change your belief about something else because that's the thing you really want to change. It's very deceptive. And that's what intersectionality is doing. And it's, I mean, this this sentence is literally happening in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. Um, there are Southern Baptist leaders and their theological seminaries and even in the convention leadership itself that are using this exact technique. And many of my friends in the Southern Baptist Convention do not realize that this is where it comes from and this is how that it, how it works. So I hope they hear this and, and can gain that understanding. That closes the second to last paragraph. We can finally read the last paragraph of this paper, wrap up this uh, shorter two-part series. I think that each episode runs a little long, but anyway. With identity thus reconceptualized, remember she said she didn't want it to be a theory, a totalizing theory of identity. Uh, intersectionality. That was something she said uh, in the introduction in part one here. But with identity thus reconceptualized, it may be easier to understand the need for and to summon the courage to challenge groups that are, after all, in one sense, home to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're in one sense, home to us in the name of the parts of us that are not made at home. That's some cute language. This takes a great deal of energy and arouses intense anxiety. The most one could expect is that we will dare to speak against internal exclusions and marginalization. So she's very interested in intra-group issues. Feminism isn't inclusive enough. Anti-racism isn't inclusive enough. So we have to look at the inter. We have to speak against internal exclusions and marginalizations. In other words, we're going to problematize the problematizers, which, like I said in the previous episode, causes us to catch on fire and become hegemonic very rapidly. Intersectionality was the tool they needed to create hegemony because it allowed them to form this coalition she was talking about a couple paragraphs back. Um, and it took off like wildfire because people who think that way, once they begin to think that way, start to see problematics all over the place because that's what adopting a critical consciousness is about, which is why the thing with the church that I was just talking about is super, super effective that you can use an issue that people would be sensitive about race to wedge on and to, to wedge your way in to start to get them to open their eyes about an issue that they are not going to compromise on as easily like sexuality. Um, where was I? Um, this takes a great deal of energy and arouses intense, intense anxiety. The most one could expect is that we will dare to speak against the internal exclusions and marginalizations that we might call attention to how the identity of the group has been centered on the intersectional identities of a few. So what she's saying is, you know, we're trying to do identity politics. We have to identify a group. And what we've got to be more cognizant of is that it excludes certain people within that group, and it only focuses on the people with the most power within the group. So you have to basically start doing the same d terrible process that the whole critical theory uh, approach does. And now we're going to use postmodern tools to make it invincible. You have to do that within the, uh, the, the critical groups and strongly concentrate their critical mentality, their critical consciousness to an extremely high degree. Recognizing, she goes on, recognizing that identity politics takes place at the site where categories intersect, 
thus seems more fruitful than challenging the possibility of talking about categories at all. So she's arguing now that intersectionality, leaning into identities and especially intersectional identities is more likely to bear successful fruit than minimizing the relevance of categories. So in other words, liberalism, bad, postmodernism, bad. That's something that those two traditions actually have in, ca in common is reducing the social significance of categories. Liberalism would say take it down to its absolute evidence-based uh, minimum, and we'll go from there and try to avoid discriminating because we're going to treat each person as an individual regardless of what category they land in. Postmodernism, on the other hand, is going to say none of the categories mean anything at all anyway, so let's throw them all out, and then there won't be any racism or sexism. So you see the two different traditions share something in common but differently. And she's saying, nope, both of those are bad. Those Both of those are not good enough. We need to lean into identity categories, in fact, and do so intersectionally, which is to constantly engage social location or positionality, as it's now called. Um it will be more fruitful. We're more fruitful for what? For these special interest identity politics that she's trying to push, uh, where you can create the the coalition of millions of voices and solidarity speaking up on behalf of these most marginalized groups. So, in other words, this is the creation of that inverted hierarchy uh, of intersectionality. And then she says, uh, to, to wrap up, she says, through an awareness of intersectionality, we can better acknowledge and ground the differences among us and negotiate the means by which these differences will find expression in, construction, in constructing group politics. So just kind of wrapping up, this one's gone really long. I didn't realize that we're almost at two hours on this episode. Uh, I really got into some of that. Just wrapping up, what she's argued then um, in this last part of the uh, essay is that intersectionality is going to allow people to construct more effective identity politics, which is what her goal was all along, the title being, you know, intersectionality, identity politics, and violence against women of color. And just a final summary of this, because this has gone extremely long, and I got to actually figure out what to do about it, because I don't know if I really want to release a two-hour podcast. Um, maybe I'll just let it fly. Uh, wrapping up anyway, is that this paper is the birthplace of wokeness. This paper is the birthplace of applied postmodernism, as we called it in cynical theories. This paper is the forging of the ring of power in intersectional solidarity that will bring all of the other identity political groups to heal, problematizing within themselves and bringing them under, under the dominion of the socialist queer black feminism at the heart of the project. Uh, all the rings have been brought together in the darkness of super identity politics and bound together in the margins, uh, the more extreme margins, the, 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 the more powerful. And that is um, the introduction and conclusion of Kimberly Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins, I hope very thoroughly explained. Uh, you can read this central part of the paper if you want. Um, I've covered now nine pages of the paper. You can read the other uh, 50 on your own if you want to. I will not read them to a microphone. And so I've dragged this out long enough. I will stop here. I appreciate you sticking with me for this long two-hour almost episode of the New Discourses podcast and the reading of Kimberly Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins, one of the most important papers, a paper that literally changed the history of the world, in my opinion, for the worse. Uh, one of the most important and unfortunate papers ever. Um, so until next time, I appreciate you, and I will talk to you then. <laughs>